Hey, I'm Michael Whistler, and I sincerely believe that science fiction can help us save the world. In this episode, I'm going to revisit a little bit of the neuroscience of storytelling and have a conversation, a bit of a follow-up conversation, really, on that topic uh, with my friend Chris Wong. Uh, so we're going to dive into some interesting themes uh, and get Chris's perspective as someone who deals with therapy and uh, helps people process trauma and his understanding of neuroscience and how the brain uses story to really make sense of life. So let's dive into it. This is Exploring Tomorrow. Chris, thank you so much for uh, coming on to the show. Uh, I'm really excited to chat with you for a little bit here about storytelling and psychology and neuroscience and uh, kind of pick your brain uh, about those topics. Uh, I understand you've been listening to the podcast, which is really cool. Uh, Chris and I are, are friends and uh, have been chatting off and on for... I don't know, I guess a, a year, maybe a little couple years now. And um, yeah. so once I started the podcast, uh, Chris started checking it out and then took particular interest in a recent episode that I did on the neuroscience of storytelling, uh, a lot of things in, uh, that I had dug up while researching my novel Sleepwalker that began to really shape and inform uh, how I saw or understand uh, storytelling and its role and importance in sense making for us as people, and uh, and Chris uh, brings a unique angle to this, and so I'm really curious to chat uh, a little more as a follow up to that episode here with Chris uh, in this episode. So I'll kick it over to Chris for a moment to uh, give us a little bit of your background and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I lo I love it. I um as a kid, as a person that's been raised by TV and movies, I love consuming podcasts that talk about movies and TV shows. Uh, so this has been great. And you know, I so currently I oversee leadership development and career development. So I do a lot of learning and development for adults. But by training, I'm actually a licensed mental health counselor, and so I've done a lot of um, mental health therapy, and. My focus has always been a lot of neuroscience because that's always been what interests me. I've always been interested in the brain and trying to figure that out as a puzzle. And that's what drew me to complex trauma because, you know, it's the ultimate puzzle of what happened to lead the person to have this set of behaviors or that the brain to develop in this way. And then how do we fix that beyond that? Um, you know, in, in grad school, my master's thesis was. Uh, how familiarity leads to false memories. So I've been always interested, especially in the idea of memories and how they can be falsified and how it's not reliable. Uh, and then when I went to, when I started working in the field, working with complex trauma and adolescence specifically, my supervisor also loved neuroscience. So I could really bounce off of her and, and learn from her. And we were really big nerds about just learning more about how the brain works and, and how to you how to think about it. And so uh, you know, as for as a disclaimer, you know, for all of your listeners, your millions of listeners, you know, 
I'm not claiming I'm not claiming to be an expert in neuroscience. It's just a topic I love a lot. And most of my knowledge of it is in the context of, you know, complex trauma, but a lot of it I saw a lot of I heard a lot of parallels in yours about storytelling. And it's a lot about what I think about now when I do learning and development. It's because it's the same idea of I have to capture people's attention and I have to I have to present things in a way that makes sense and that they really emotionally respond to because that's how they're really going to learn it's not an academic exercise it's really more about how do they emotionally identify with this content that's great yeah makes sense and I, i'm i'm excited to be able to unpack some of these ideas especially bringing in that perspective of dealing uh with mental health and with trauma um and being able to look at it from that uh angle um in so I'm I I'm sure while you say you're you're not an expert uh, I, I'm sure there's uh, still loads I can learn uh, from you so uh, thanks for agreeing to come on to the uh, the show and and chat for a little while I'm uh, a little curious to hear uh, what um, like what stood out to you and like in listening to that episode about uh, the neuroscience of storytelling where I just kind of like gave a, a high level view kind of uh, some of the major touch points that I have uh, come across in, in the last few years of researching and just reading about those things. I too am not a neuroscientist by any stretch. Um, but I'm curious what, what stood out to you uh, and like what uh, sparked your interest in, in having further discussion? I think the first thing that, you said that that I, you got right. You got right about this, and there's something that I was, I was like really worried you were going to say the wrong thing. Is that the primary function of the brain is survival? It's fight or flight, right? It's fight or flight or freeze. And so, it's it's an underestimated how much that guides our daily interaction, right? Because you know, evolutionarily, back in the day, like like we could be, we're just worried about predators. We're trying to make sure we make it through the day. And yeah, we don't think about that day to day, but we still have that same concept, right? Every day, whether we, you know, if we're at work and we face a situation where uh, somebody says something that, that distresses us, without realizing it, a lot of us will just go into that fight or flight or freeze response right away. So we'll suddenly, our adrenaline kicks up or we want to leave right away or, or we just are stuck because we're like, I don't even know what to do with this situation. <laughs> right. You just freeze up. Yeah. And just thinking about like how people are responding to political situations, current events, like we're all responding with that. And because we're not thinking about life or death situations anymore, we don't, we're, we don't realize that we're following the same instincts. It's just under a different context, but we still have the same response. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was certainly a, a big uh, aha moment for me as well as I, you know, read uh lisa cron's books uh in particular where she really unpacked that from like incited various neuroscientists and evolutionary psychologists like uh steven pinker at, at harvard uh who talk about that like that that primary drive of the brain is just like keeping us alive you know and 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 how okay the brain is with getting it wrong if the net effect is that we're still alive. So I know that David Eagleman talks about this idea of 
you know, you can walk into your backyard and, and out of the corner of your eye, you spot what you think is a snake and you jump and you freak out. Oh mm -hmm. no, it's just your hose. And, and he talks about mm -hmm. how like your brain is totally fine with getting that wrong. Like 99 out of a hundred times. Cause if that one time it actually is a poisonous snake and you need to jump out of the way, it's mm -hmm. done its job. It doesn't care how much you're traumatized. <laughs> <laughs> like and how much distress mm. is actually caused that that like need to keep you alive and safe and out of harm is so strong that's like that's okay we'll we'll get it wrong the majority of the time but that one time that on the off chance that you need it <laughs> you're going to be glad yeah. that you that you jumped <laughs> Right. And and something you said, you and your buddy talked about in the last episode about um, devs, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you talked about how, like, how impulsive we are, right? And you, and you talked about how it's not until later in life until we, until we receive, until we get more control over that impulsivity, right? And you're right, like, at, when we're growing up, it's, it's always, and even through our life, it's always going through that initial uh, fight or flight or freeze response. And then as we get into our mid-20s, our prefrontal cortex, right, the front of our brain really develops. And that's when we start analyzing that data before we even respond. So we may not jump all the time because mm. our prefrontal cortex, if we've developed it enough, may suddenly start analyzing it quickly and say, oh, actually, you know what? That's not a threat. We're okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That And that's that's also a really fascinating <laughs> uh thing to remember that like you know the free prefrontal cortex doesn't really fully develop until like about age 25 like is where it finishes developing right. and um i have a uh friend uh who has a son who who just recently uh finished his degree in neuroscience uh oh, and, and has long been interested in neuroscience and she uh often tells the story about, I don't know, early on in adolescence, he, he got interested in, in neuroscience and brains and started reading about him, all that kind of stuff. And so anytime he got in trouble and, um, and she would say, what's going on? Why are you doing this? <laughs> what were you thinking? And he would just be like, mom, <laughs> the prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed yet. <laughs> <laughs> And so finally he turned 25 Most just recently, kid. right? Right. But he just turned 25 <laughs> recently. And that was absolutely her, her big Facebook post was like, no, you can't say that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> now your stupid decisions are on you. Great, great excuse. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and I, and I appreciate that. You know, when I worked with kids who, or I worked with teenagers who went through that and, there's also a ton of research that shows even if they don't have that prefrontal cortex that's that's causing that, there's still another area of the brain. I, I don't remember the part of that brain, but it actually works by habit so that the more times you do something, the more times you can build in the habit. So even if you face a same stimulus a lot of times, if you build in a habit of how to respond to it, and you know this is like hundreds of thousands of times that you do something – you can ch you can have that person react in the, a different way, but you have to drill it in so much that practice, um, and that uh, you know, and that 
the idea of what you said, like it's it's a way of reading and experiencing things through fiction is a way of simulating that, right? So you don't have to actively go through that. Right. Yeah. That idea that you you have a uh a safe environment <laughs> to to run through these these uh scenarios uh so that it doesn't have to not as much as at stake, you know, if I'm just watching a movie or reading a book. It's not quite the same. Yeah. And speaking of storytelling, how do you see this playing out? The, you know, the, the creation of narrative and sense-making uh, for, you know, people, especially when, when it comes to uh, trauma. And you mentioned a little bit about, you know, your interest in memories and the falsification of memories. I, I'm just curious of, uh, like what your experience is with that and and that you know how how much we we potentially shape or don't shape the the narratives and and the memories we have yeah i have you ever heard of narrative therapy no i haven't that, that one's new to me so you should check it out because i think that's exactly what you're thinking of because it's the idea of how do you help people make meaning out of these stories that they either tell themselves or that they've created. And it's, it's a really interesting and it's, it's, it's a really deep dive into kind of how to do a certain type of therapy, but for working with traumatized people, um, I guess I'll just speak from experience cause I can't speak for everybody. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of blockage of that memory, right? Cause it's a protect, it's a self protective thing. The brain's like, I don't want to go there cause it's, it's, it's hurtful. It's, it's painful. I don't want to experience that right in the moment. Right. And a lot of trauma is reliving it. Like the brain actively relives it as if it's in the, in the moment, right. There's no sense of time, uh, in that, in that memory center really. So there's, you're experiencing it as if it's in real time. So you're protecting yourself. So how do you, so the, that's always a question. People always wonder, how do I get them to process this memory or re think about this memory or bring it back up? Um, and and first I'll say the real goal of trauma therapy is not to talk about the trauma, right? The goal of trauma therapy is you want the person to go to work, you want the person to go to school, you want them to function and not get triggered day to day. If they're able to talk about their trauma, if they are able to process it and share the story, that's a great byproduct. They'll make a lot of progress real fast. But really, you want them to be able to function in everyday life without getting triggered, right? And some people cannot. They just can't, especially if it's um, you know, we've had, I've, most of my work has been with kids who are traumatized starting from birth. They're never going to recall that. There's no possible way. Like they can't recall memories before they start speaking. So everything there is a sense memory. They'll never be able to talk about it. So what we did with a lot of those kids and, and you find with a lot of kids, even without trauma is, is if you have an external person they can go to. So if you have like a doll that they can talk to. And I have, we've had a lot of kids and a lot of success with kids who can write, if you have them write a story. Like, and I've had kids that write like really intricate comic books, really intricate like fiction stories about a vampire and, and how they live, how they were like went through ter terrible times. And this, these kids could never talk about their own experiences, but they could write it down as if another character is experiencing it. And then they could really, you know, externalize it that way. That's fascinating. So, so there's that maybe a level of stepping back 
and 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 being able to look out from outside look in on mm-hmm. on the uh, circumstances that's very interesting yeah, yeah. i mean it's not, it's not as threatening right it's yeah. not as i'm telling you to do this or you need to experience this again it's i'm just creating a story i'm just creating this world and i can just fill it with whatever i want mm. mm-hmm. yeah that's that's interesting right. and in and in that process are they then able to like how 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 does that go for like being, bringing it back and like processing their own uh, trauma or is it is it more of a just depends on on how they seem to respond or how much they want to delve into it. It depends on how much they want to delve into it. Again, if they if it was like you know a kid that's that was. Um, traumatized and abused at like infancy as a baby right Right. they're not going to recall that um but through the story you could also develop it into you know this person goes through this issue how do you think they're going to handle this stressor um again very coming back to your point about the simulations Mm -hmm. right so it's it, it is very much how or how would this person handle this difficult situation Right, and you can you can start inputting things that this this kid or this person is really experiencing as a trigger, and then through this character that they've created, they can start thinking about how what is a better way to handle a situation or or an emotional response. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, that's one of the things I'd be curious about is like, uh, is there a sense of creating empathy for themselves? Um, you know, in, in that process because of. Because you know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, as you, as you talk about that, I think about, you know, some of the advice that I've come across in terms of, you know, especially you know, like negative self-talk and, and like how hypercritical we can be of ourselves, right? And, mm-hmm. and the advice of actually you need to like take a moment and step back and imagine it's your best friend or like someone mm-hmm. you really care about that's going through the situation that you're in. What advice would you give them? You know, like you wouldn't, mm. you wouldn't tell your best friend, yeah. you're an idiot. Like you're a failure. You suck at this. Like you wouldn't do mm-hmm. that. So why are you doing <laughs> that to yourself? You know, <laughs> um, I'm curious, like if, if, if that kind of response is, uh, comes through, uh, at times for, for kids going through this narrative therapy like that. I think it can, I think it's helpful to that. I think you're right. I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of shame and guilt associated with, when you undergo abuse, because there's that feeling of, is it my fault? Could I have stopped it somehow? You know, that's very common to that. And so I think it's how do you, to your point, how do you self-love? How do you show yourself that you're of worth? Um, honestly, though, that's tough, though, because if you, you know, from an early age, the first five years of life, you're already developing that uh I call it an internal working model, not me, but some theories call it internal internal working model. But the idea of how do I view myself and how do I view the world around me? And so that's set from like an early age and that's very hard to rewrite, Hmm. right? It's, it's possible, but remember the, or I should say that that's, that's based on the attachment style that your parents gave you. Right. So again, that's, and you're going to perceive and and proceed uh, uh, edit every single interaction in the world based on that worldview that you got 
based on how your parents treated you and or met your needs or didn't meet your needs. So is the world trustworthy? Are people safe? Are they going to help me? Are, they, are people out there to help me generally? Or are people dangerous and they're, they're going to hurt me? Mm-hmm. So now every inter- am I of worth or am I not? Because now every interaction will feed will be based off of that, right? You know, right. so I walk into a room, somebody's laughing. Is my first thought, oh, they must be laughing. They must have told a funny joke, or they must be laughing at me. And a lot of that derives back from you know how do I view the world? Are people safe generally, or are people dangerous generally? That's interesting. Yeah. So, and and what what kind of builds that kind of worldview or that kind of narrative in your mind of like are people safe or not? Well, let me ask you this: um, Imagine, like, let's say you have a baby, right? And you, I know you've had a baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, when your baby's crying, what do you do? Right. Generally. Right. What would you do? Go go pick her up and and. You know, comfort her and, yeah. find, and find out what if something's troubling her, right? Yeah. What if you don't pick her up or mm-hmm. attend to her? What if you just ignore her? What if she? What does she do? Would probably cry longer, <laughs> yeah, louder, cry longer, and that maybe eventually give up. I guess I don't know. I never got that far. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, good. I'm glad you didn't get that far. But eventually, <laughs> she would stop. You know and. Mm-hmm. And this is, all, it is something that some people stress about. Like, yeah. does that mean after one time it's going to be, um, it's gonna, my baby's going to be traumatized? Mm-hmm. No, one time is not really that big of a deal. A couple times is not really that big of a deal. Every now and then is not that big of a deal. If it's every day mm-hmm. that your baby cries and nobody's ever meeting my needs, what am I learning? Right. Mm-hmm. That I can't trust anybody. I'm on my own in the world here. Right. Or, you know, we all we all have this biological imprint that our caregivers, the people we grow up with taking care of us, are there to trust, are there to keep us safe. Mm-hmm. Now, what if they're the ones abusing us? Right. That really creates a really complex dynamic of this is my protector, this is my caregiver, and they're a source of danger. And so how do I reconcile that? Are these always going to be the same? And how do I trust other people? Right. right. And this is a lot of that. I'm not sure if you're familiar with attachment theory, but that's a lot of the attachment bit. theory. Do we have secure attachments? Yeah, but same idea. That's where it all comes from. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And is that is that something as well? I mean, like, how much is that moldable later in life? Like you, I know you kind of said, like, you, that stuff gets kind of pretty set pretty early on. Like, is there a way to sort of shift that narrative later in life? Oh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it'd be a terrible field to be in if we could never do anything to solve that. Right. <laughs> um, so, look, the, it's a double-edged sword because the reality is the studies have shown tons. You could do tons of work and people can get back to pretty much where they need to be. Um, if you give them the right supports, the right environment, do do us, do we as a society have enough resources to provide the right supports and environment for everybody? That, that, that answer is harder to get to because for a couple, for a few, for a small amount, maybe. But, you know, most people who aren't involved in this field wouldn't know this, but thinking about how many kids go through 
uh, Department of Children and Families or whatever the, their state or their country's analog is, right? Like that that state agency that helps deal with uh, kids who are need to be taken away for their own safety. There's a lot of kids in need and not enough social supports for that, right? And that's something uh, it frustrates me. And, and I think that you kind of talked about your one, I forget the name of the book, but you said that it would be a great blueprint for governments to read and think about like for the future, like how to plan for the future and think about it. Um, oh, uh, what, that I was, right. yeah. At least what the, was that book? Uh, Saturn Run yeah. that I was uh, talking a little bit about in terms Maybe. of, uh, I, I wish more politicians would read just in terms of like yeah. the, the tribalism uh, that <laughs> that plays out in that book and the the new space race between China and the U.S. Uh, yeah, as a, like yes. well, we yes. have to be the first to procure this alien technology. We can't let them, <laughs> you know, and that fear of yeah. the other that plays into that. And I was like, I wish you know more politicians were reading these kinds of stories and like really wrestling with that that kind of tribalistic tendency and narrative that, mm -hmm. that exists within every culture. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a definite, it's a clear tendency because it's like, we all want to have an in group that we feel we belong to, yeah. uh, that brings a real sense mm -hmm. of identity and safety. Uh, and then belonging to that group, um, kind of ensures our continued survival and safety and, and, and the future of our, you know, offspring and all that. So there's some very clear reasons from what I've read about like why our brains tend towards that kind of, uh, tribalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then we run into this issue, uh, where we're no longer, uh, you know, just a little tribe, of a few hundred or a few thousand people uh, wandering the plains somewhere, the mountains somewhere, and then coming into contact mm -hmm. with these unknown groups. Uh, we are in a globalized society where, you know, pandemic mm -hmm. aside, I could, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, like 20 minutes from Logan airport. I can and just go, and fly across the world and in a matter of a few hours be in Beijing or in Tokyo or yeah. anywhere else. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and then not only that, actually, even especially with <laughs> everything that's going on with the pandemic and thanks to technology like this, I'm daily in contact with my coworkers who are in Australia. Uh, mm. and, and it's, you know, yeah. The, people all over the world, Portugal and like we live in a global society. And then how do we, how do we contend with our like smaller tribalistic tendency? Mm -hmm. And then this like really big context we suddenly find ourselves in is a, yeah. is a and, struggle. <laughs> and, and that, I don't, I don't mean to go on a tangent, but like when some of, one of the things you mentioned in that, that um, episode you talked about was, you know the I, the need for them to for politicians to really think long term instead mm. of short term You're right needs and i think one of the factors is feedback there's for yeah. long term things there's not you don't get enough feedback to know whether you're doing the right thing or not right and right. so the, to bring it back the reason i bring that up was that that's the same reason why it's hard to invest in social services like that it's because you're not going to see a return 
you're not going to know if you're doing the right thing even. Even if you put the money into this service versus that service, you won't really know if you're doing the right thing for many, many, many years later. So how can you possibly know, was this a worthy investment or not? So businesses try to do like return on investments and they try to do all these calculations. Right. But for some of these things, there's such a long time frame. There's no possible way to know whether you did the right thing or not by investing millions in this service versus that service. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. That is an interesting factor to, to consider and bring in, um, you know, cause even, uh, what I do for a day job, like often involves work with a, a consulting company that, that is actively encouraging, and, and helping organizations design a thousand year vision, you know, mm-hmm. now that's something that's becomes malleable and changeable, but it becomes based on, on uh, core values and principles that, are, that mm-hmm. are guiding that. But the, the idea there is how do you instill those in such a way that, uh, in your culture, in your organization, that it, um, permeates the day-to-day decisions mm. and helps us break out of our, I just need, you know, to, to ensure that these, the KPIs are a mm. maximum for next quarter, <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, and not thinking about the fact that, well, what are the potential KPIs that need to be thought about or measured in, in longer terms? Uh, but I, I think that's there, therein is the interesting challenge of that. Like, how do you measure those KPIs that are generations out Mm -hmm. or even just decades out? You know, that's, (laughs) it's, it's hard. And I, yeah, I mean, that's the essence of what I do now is that leadership development is how do I train these leaders, future leaders, current leaders to develop these things and think about these things how do i get them to execute on their vision and their and their idea right and that's where i've really gone into storytelling is because i think there's just in training and learning and development there's been a big push to be more story oriented because that's how people really really will learn and understand and and even remember things right right is through stories and so i've started to incorporate some of that but um, but it's certainly an art form unto itself. Right. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Like how, how is that being incorporated? How are you utilizing storytelling in that capacity? Well, I, I've started, uh, start, uh, when I do trainings, I'll start with a story that illustrates what we're trying to do with the training. So some kind of example from real life, uh, things like that. Um, there's been team meetings where when I try to impress a point, I'll share a story about something happening. Like I love, I love sharing a story about uh, um, in Eastern Africa, in East Africa, uh, there's a movie made about this, uh, the boy who harnessed the wind, something like that. And it was made into a movie. Mm-hmm. Great movie, super inspiring. But I love telling the story about William Kumquamba who barely had a middle school education and was going through a famine, he f- created a windmill from scratch to save his family from a famine uh, <laughs> and his whole area to harness water. Right. Right. 
That's so amazing. And so I love telling that story. When when people say, no, we can't do this or that can't be done, I was like, listen, anything can be done. Like, really, yeah. Right. If, you're, if you're committed to it and it may be uh, <laughs> uh, desperate enough, like, you'll go for it. <laughs> right. And the, what was that? That, um, that the Mars rover that just landed yeah, on Mars? Mm-hmm. Perseverance. It had to... It was in orbit at like over 13,000 miles. It had to slow down to over one mile. It had 11 minutes to do it when it get down there. Yeah. And there's an 11-minute delay from there to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right? All, all these things, I'm like, oh my goodness, these things happen in real life. Mm-hmm. We can't say this is impossible. This can't be done. Right. The the, the craziness that, that the amount of engineering there that, and, and just crazy. <laughs> innovation that goes into making those things a possibility um i mean i always i always think of you know uh, apollo 13 and and the craziness that, that they had to uh-huh. endure and the ingenuity that went into you know, just jerry-rigging uh uh filtration yeah. so that they could safely uh, get home and it's just like yeah you know part of it is Sure. Yeah, NASA has the you know some of the very smartest people, a whole bunch of them, uh, mm-hmm. working on this. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think we sell ourselves short in our ability to do engage in creative problem solving, and um, and we don't have to always operate with the. Uh, people are going to die in a few hours, you know, in a matter of a day or two, uh, you know, in the, yeah. in the scenario, you know, you say, you know, like, I'm not worried about is my family yeah, going to starve to death in this famine uh, or bringing astronauts home safely. So, but there's still a real sense in which is like, well, if we actually just buckle down and do it, like be willing to suffer through the discomfort you know, because I think mm-hmm. that's part of that. Mm-hmm. That's part of that issue, right? Too. That's a that, and that's a brain thing too. The whole idea of like, like uh, you know, the fast and slow parts of the brain that mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. where there is that discomfort because it burns a lot of calories to to yeah. invest in so much like intentional thinking uh, mm-hmm. that your brain uh, can be a little like, nah, like, don't really want to do that. Wouldn't it be easier to just coast? <laughs> and it's, you know, it, it, yeah. that's also a survival thing, right? Because it's like, well, the brain for the all of like three pounds that it is consumes a disproportionate amount of energy compared to the rest of your body. So right. most of the time right. it's trying to not do that. It's turning the thermostat down as it were on thinking. And uh, and trying to just operate kind of on quick, you know, uh, split second decisions, and not sit here and analyze stuff. And then when you have to sit and analyze, and then you start having to innovate ideas and do creative problem solving, and make mm-hmm. a uh, windmill from scratch <laughs> for your family, um, <laughs> that's that's hard work. It's it's uncomfortable. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. So I, I yeah and. Well, that that makes me think of another point you brought up, and this is not really neuroscience, it's more like a philosophical (laughs) question that you said, you know, free will, like people don't often exercise free will much throughout the day Mm -hmm. or ever in there. And uh, it made me think, 
I guess it depends on how you define free will. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Because if you're thinking free will as in you understand, you've really examined and thought about and understand all the complexities and consequences of any decisions you're making, then I guess that's accurate because can we ever really know all the consequences or be really super informed, right? Like, right. Mm-hmm. Like even if we choose surgery, like in a, in a hospital setting, if we choose surgery, there's no possible way that if we're not in the medical profession that we could possibly understand <laughs> right. all the implications of whether we choose to do a surgery or not. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess, because I feel like we all... Like you're right. Most people go through the day on autopilot because that's just easier for our brain. <laughs> right. Right. It is. It is a lot of energy. However, there's still a lot of times we make decisions throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Right. And the, um, you know, and I guess that's, I guess that that goes down to again that comes down to how do you define free will? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a. It's a. It is a pretty sort of philosophical question. I guess where where I've kind of wrestled with that is in reading, um, you know, scientists like uh, David Eagleman and uh, about the studies that they've done around um, actually narrative construction, the fact that, like, uh, they'll get people to make a choice between two identical things. They'll tell them they're different, Right. And but they're mm. actually two identical things, and then people pick one, and then they like ask why? Why did you pick that? And then they give you this whole like narrative of like, well, it's because this mm. one's brighter colors and blah blah blah, all this stuff, and and, and the the basically the the indications there are there's a lot of like emotional input that goes into mm. to the decision in the moment um and then there's a lot of post rationalizing where i'm yeah. going to create a yeah. narrative now after the fact to um validate my choice <laughs> and and, and, and yeah. therein yeah. and that's not to say that in that moment you aren't somewhat exercising free will it's just I struggle to know, like, where is it and how much free will am I exercising in that moment? Because um, am I just operating on, on a, like, gut level, just I'm reacting or am I choosing? Mm. You know, and that, that mm. where where is that line between reacting and choosing um, mm. Mm. and the complexity even of, like, the many of the things that on a day-to-day um, experience that I choose are things that exist in my world and in the path of my daily life uh, because of previous choices I've made and and how much like habit uh, shapes our our existence. You know, we were talking about habit a little, mm. a little earlier and. How many things do I just do because that's my habit? That's you know, and and yeah. I've set this course in front of me, and now these things are my choices that are readily available to me, and I don't even think beyond them. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, yep, yep. <laughs> I react to my environment yeah. to a degree. That's, I mean, it's yeah. it. I don't have a clear that's, answer. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with behavioral economics. Mm, but uh, no. some of some behavioral economic economists actually study that question: How do we make decisions? Mm-hmm. And they find the same thing. If you 
almost all of our decisions are gut decisions or are emotional based and then we post post rationalize it and so they've they've done studies where they'll have them choose like a really hard decision like two different decisions but they'll like that's emotionally focused and then they just have to come up with reasons afterwards and they find that they're just happy with either people are happy with either uh answer interesting (laughs) whatever they chose right which is interesting because we'll we'll, we'll rationalize oh this was the right choice this this made the most sense for me (laughs) right so where does buyer's remorse come from in that scenario (laughs) (laughs) who knows who knows um and then have you ever, uh, what was his name? The psychologist, Victor Frankl. Mm-hmm. Have you ever read him? Yes. Yeah, he wrote Man's yeah, Search, Man for, Search Meaning. for Meaning. Wonderful book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's also something to think about, right? Also, mm-hmm. is like the idea that like, we always have a choice. And I think that's, that's an important concept. Because that's, that's the essence of trauma is feeling like you have no choice. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and right. certainly Feeling his- powerless, feeling stuck. Yeah, his yeah. his story of picturing himself, you know, not in a concentration camp. So for any listeners not familiar with Viktor Frankl, I highly recommend his book and I have friends who have been highly influenced by by his book as well. Um, you know, he he was a uh, Nazi concentration camp uh, survivor and uh, one of the key things that he did was while in this utterly dire um, really hell on earth experience of concentration of a Nazi concentration camp. Uh, he paused and began to picture himself, uh, warm in a nice, uh, auditorium with students and talking about his experiences and how he survived in, uh, how, how he dealt with uh, his circumstances in the concentration camp. And it became this like goal, like I want to get to that point, you know? And so picturing it and experiencing it um, became a means in which he set himself up for a, look, there's a, be- a reality beyond this. Uh, and so and it is an interesting idea of, of how, you can potentially exercise free will and, and exercise a, a, a level of control over circumstances that seem truly completely out of your control and in many ways are completely out of your control. So, you know, because obviously anyone in a concentration camp, given the option, is going to walk out. <laughs> you know, no one would want to stay. Mm. Um, so it's not, no one's there by choice. And yet it's a really fascinating um, response that Viktor Frankl had. Uh, and, and then sure enough, it came true. And, and he went on to be a professor and he wrote this great book, Man's Search for Meaning, um, which has been incredibly influential for a lot of people. But yeah, that's a, I think it's a, an interesting scenario in which Viktor Frankl probably is like, uh, uh, someone we can point to and say, I, I think, I think maybe he did exercise free will in some of the most um, daunting ways possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. just like mm-hmm. none of us could even imagine. Like you know, that's just not a reality right. that any of us have experienced. 
Right. Right. And, uh, and to be able to, I think that's an interesting thing too, from a narrative side and being able to go back and learn from people like Viktor Frankl by reading his book and by reading, um, other real narratives from that time period of other survivals. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Shantung compound, but is a, is also mm, a, no. uh, it's a, it's a fascinating book, uh, also about Nazi concentration camp and, um, and around basically the real like miniature society they managed to set up within that, those confines and, and, mm. um, the, the internal governance of their own miniature society and how they were able to then uh, exercise their own level of control over that situation, their own sense of purpose. Um, very uh, powerful book in that capacity as well. Hmm. Um, but reading yeah. those kinds of narratives, like, because I'm never going to be I hope, <laughs> but, uh, you know, <laughs> I got, but certainly I'm never going to be in a Nazi concentration camp in world war II. Um, but there's something, sure. uh, powerful about experiencing that and learning from that. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually I'd be really curious to hear from you, from your perspective as somebody who deals, uh, with trauma, what is it about um traumatic stories like that whether they're true or whether they're fiction um why do we feel drawn to experience traumatic stories like that and, and sort of go through them experience them vicariously as it were mm. that's a good question that's a good question i don't know because it gets your adrenaline going it <laughs> increases your level of arousal and it's um because i know that for me after working in it for a few years what was that book room mm -hmm. i don't know if you remember reading that yep. book or seeing that movie yep. mm -hmm. both i made it i made it halfway through the book and i was like you know what this is a lot like work i'm done <laughs> i don't need to listen to the rest of this i don't i don't care right to right. even bother to see like those kind of things don't interest me because i'm like oh I've seen enough of it. I've I've done I've dealt with it. I am done. I don't need to see it again in my everyday life. So that for me that doesn't pull me in. Mm -hmm. Um and I feel like there's other I've had other coworkers that also feel the same way. Um so I wonder yeah, I don't know. My only theory is that it it because there's a certain level of arousal that you that you get from that that you normally wouldn't be able to get if you have a if you don't have a job that does that for you. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's because it, there is something about like, yeah, if you're coping and dealing with that on a daily basis, uh, it, it's not, <laughs> yeah, not something yeah. you want to come home to. <laughs> That's interesting. It's like work. <laughs> um, it's like work. Yeah. 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 I can, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. So probably a lot of uh, emergency room. Uh, folks back in the day didn't come home and watch ER is what you're saying. Mm. You know, I don't know. That's a good question. I know a lot of doctors watch scrubs. 
but that's different because it wasn't like a heavy right showing like the nitty gritty. It was like it showed the realist realism of medicine, but it also had a lighthearted comedy approach. So right. mm-hmm. yeah, maybe, it had a lot it, of levity. that made it different enough. Yeah, there's yeah. definitely, a, you know, I mean, it was primarily a comedy. What worked about it was that they also, you know, actually as my uh, theater professor uh, would often say, uh, you know, if they, if they laugh with you, they'll cry with you. So there's actually mm-hmm. some amazingly poignant moments in Scrubs, but, uh, you know, it's, I think they, they managed to get yeah. there because they've got your guard down you know, laughing, right, having right. a good time, and then it's you carrying, and whew, <laughs> and they hit you good. Yeah. Well, yeah, they earned it. They had they had mm-hmm. good, solid characters and storytelling that pulled you in. Yeah. Right. So tell me, how do you um, relate this all back to interest uh, and affinity towards science fiction, and uh, and potentially? science fiction yeah and because i know you you know you've you, you've dig some good science fiction and and uh at some point we're probably gonna do some unpacking of the x-files and and whatnot yeah um so because you know my because like why, why i even started this podcast is around this whole idea that um science fiction like storytelling and the reason i like spending time doing these kinds of discussions that aren't explicitly about science fiction uh, is because storytelling, I think is such a powerful uh, thing. It's, you know, we've been talking about how fundamental it is to how we make sense of, of life. Um, And so then along with that comes this genre science fiction that, is all about speculating, getting very philosophical, and uh, imagining future scenarios and uh, all kinds of interesting conundrums we can potentially get into, and often reflecting mm-hmm. back an interesting picture of the world. Um, so, tell me a little bit about about your your science fiction uh, affinities and and where do you see crossover between what you do for work and and uh, science fiction. Well, you asked me like eight different questions in there. That's uh, <laughs> how I like to roll. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I've never watched science fiction. I don't know what that word means. And so, <laughs> um, you know, I think what I like about science fiction is that it's, uh, for me, it's it's a really cool way of examining these big life philosophical questions and playing it out and what it could look like if somebody were to choose a certain way or, or believe a certain way. Like a lot of like a lot of tropes in science fiction movies, TV shows, is that the time loop that you're you're stuck in, right? And so I, I for me when I see that, like yeah, it's done over and over again. But I like seeing how a character may handle it, and like I I like seeing or it interests me to see at what point do they get despair? At what point do they try to fight back at it? How angry do they get? If at all, how do they manage it? Right, and how much of that is dictated by their personality that that we've seen thus far. Um, but I, I think I just like that it, it's able to ask these kind of big questions about what does it mean, like person of interest. I, I wish you could get into it. Yeah, I gotta. I, gotta I don't know where you can even it. watch it. But, yeah. <laughs> but a lot of those things are like it's it's about AI and you know essentially how much control should somebody have over this kind of thing that 
this machine that can do anything you want it to do. Mm-hmm. And you and you see it play out. There's people who believe, no, as humans, we should have limited power because this, nobody should be able to control it. And you have another human character says, no, we should. And then even within the government, it's not so clear cut because some people within the government that do shadowy things have super altruistic concerns and they just don't fully understand the the responsibility that comes with this. Yeah, yeah. And so how do you manage all these different aspects? And I think it's really interesting to see and it plays out, you know, in, in real life um, or future life, depending on if it's future. But I, I think that's what I like. It's, it's a way to really examine how people react, how people's personalities will come out and, and respond to situations and then how they're going to react and kind of manage through manage through all these very bizarre situations. <laughs> right. For sure. For sure. And, and you know what? It, one thing that occurs to me too is like, is is there any science fiction out there that you think um, actually shows a more evolved or mentally healthy human species? I guess that uh, I guess that depends on the perspective you take and how you how you categorize mentally healthy mm-hmm. um, because there's, I think in a lot of, I guess, longer lasting sci-fi shows, like I'm, I'm binging Stargate SG one right now, just because it's something to watch in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something I used to watch years ago. There's this advanced uh, human species. That's like years ahead of us. And they're very, they're usually very calm and they have a lot of great technology and they're able to handle a lot of situations However, they're not really great at open and honest communication, mm. you know, and so they keep lots of secrets and they purposely do things that are in their own self-interest and they don't, they're not super uh, generous with their energy, time and resources. Um, you know, they're helpful, they're allies, but they're not as helpful as they, as we would expect them to be. So it's, it's interesting, right? And, um, and there's this other advanced human species that's like super advanced technologically but they're very condescending and dismissive (laughs) so you know to anybody that's less less advanced than they are so yes they are advanced in the sense that they have control over lots of different elements of nature but are they by by our interpersonal standards of like emotional intelligence that we currently grade ourselves on are they mentally healthy that way? Probably not. So mm-hmm. it really, de- I think it depends on the standard you're looking at. Right, right. Yeah, because I'm curious about that as like, uh, as our understanding of emotional intelligence and uh, the role of vulnerability and empathy and all these uh, very, you know, what, what, has been labeled, especially in the corporate world, as sort of the soft skills. But I would really say, mm-hmm. like, honestly, mm-hmm. these are some of the hardest skills you'll ever master in life. You're going to spend your entire life learning and working on these things. You're never yeah. going to be amazing at it. <laughs> you know, like, the, right, right, continued right. work. And then just, like, and as even as I think about, like, all the science fiction that I, that I read and watch, and, like, that seems like an interesting challenge there that's like do we see that kind of growth in human beings or not 
you know, do we picture that kind mm -hmm. of a future or not? Um, and I don't know. I, I'm going to have to go and like contemplate that for a while. Cause it's not a question of like really seen played out. I think in a lot of science fiction scenarios where it's like, we actually mm -hmm. see, I mean, and part of it again is that question of like, I've had people ask like, why, why isn't there more like really optimistic science fiction? And I, part of it is like, mm -hmm. I just come back to, mm -hmm. well, you know, story needs conflict. Conflict is what like makes our brains pay attention. Um, and so it's easier to build, you know, you're just going to have more stories that are going to be uh, built around sure. the conflicts and challenges and cautionary tales of things gone wrong. Um, so it feels natural to be like, yeah, in this future scenario, and then people behave pretty much like we expect people to behave uh, selfishly <laughs> short-sighted mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? um, mm -hmm. and, and, and generally making choices out of um, fear. Um, so, you know, then you mm -hmm. see all that mm -hmm. that's rife with conflict. That's all you gotta like. It's very simple to do that. Probably harder to build a story where you've got mostly emo emotionally mature individuals. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's true. And, and you know what? I think that's, that's, that is an interesting idea because if we look at – if we're judging based on emotional intelligence and empathy and people care for one another, I would argue that the generation that's coming up now is a lot more open and understanding than you know, when I was going through school. Right? A, lot of the, a lot of the slurs that we used that kids in school that when we were growing up, hmm. that wouldn't fly these days. Right, and that's a good thing. Like, yeah. I'm glad we don't use people don't use those slurs as much anymore. Right. Um, obviously, that's not true, but it's becoming more widespread. Hey, we need to care about other people. We can't make fun of other people because of this or that. Right. Right. Um, but that's not something, you know, that's not something we foresaw in, you know, in movies about 2020. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and often science fiction doesn't really predict the future in quite literal terms that way it uh, toys with some ideas and really reflects uh, current challenges and um, mm -hmm. uh, historical challenges and like puts them in a new context puts them in a new light uh, but I'll be curious to see if more of that kind of storytelling evolves uh, as time goes by I mean I wonder if to some degree where would you say the emotional intelligence of um, the characters in The Martian uh, potentially come, comes out? Like, where do they potentially land? Because mm -hmm. that doesn't feel, to me at least, like the traditional mm -hmm. a bunch of bunch of basically what ultimately you know self interested um, half wits like doing very bad things with yeah. amazing technology. It's a very different uh, scenario, right? Because there are no bad guys. It's just yeah. surviving odds and circumstance. Right. right. You know, and I'll be honest, I don't remember the details of that movie. I remember I liked it. Yeah, exactly. I remember, you know, generally what happens. Um, he has very yeah, dark that's sense a good of humor. Point. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but he seems to like stick with it you know yeah yeah that's a good point um 
you know, it also makes me think of Interstellar because that's something I've seen more recently. Right. Mm-hmm. So that I can bring that to example, and um, you know, I, in my mind, there's in that that's another example of where there's, there's no real like human protagonist. There's just like right, you know, life <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, um, antagonists. Right. So it, maybe that is being more reflected. You know, in more sci-fi, more modern sci-fi, there's no like uh, people who are actively trampling on other people's emotions, or you know, no antisocial tendencies or less antisocial tendencies. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's maybe to your point. Maybe that's more a reflection of the the author's current time frame and the, and the, and how they're viewing things per- currently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe that's an interesting thing. Um, because there's definitely more science fiction of the other kind, <laughs> but uh, for sure, right? But it, it is an interesting sure, scenario right? to think about, like the and do we see that potentially playing out more in more science fiction stories? It's interesting too that both of those mm. are tend towards more hard sci-fi, Interstellar and mm. and The Martian, um, versus the more soft sci-fi which is like i don't know we you know we throw out a few crazy words and and then we have like <laughs> you know teleportation and and time travel and whatever <laughs> yeah hmm that's that you know that's an interesting point i'll have to think about um as yeah i'll have to think about that because that's that's certainly interesting where does emotional intelligence play? What role does it play? Right. Mm-hmm. Out of curiosity, have you seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Oh, yeah. I love that movie. Yeah. I mean, that would probably be love worth it. a whole episode to just try to unpack the the emotional intelligence and trauma and, and the pluses and minuses of um, reprogramming memory, right? Mm. And the... Uh, mm. And the even the validity of that notion, because in this, in a sense, you know, we we do reprogram our memories as we live, and each time we're recalling those memories, we're rewiring yeah. them at the same time. Um, yeah. So <laughs> that one's always a perennial favorite of mine to come back and revisit. Oh uh, yeah, I love it. I I think it's a great representation of how unstable memory is. Uh, I remember one thing I read about the movie that that always impressed me that he even had this forethought is that um, he didn't use marks for when he was shooting scenes. So like the actors could be anywhere and like they would never they would like be slightly different places Mm. every time they shot a scene from a different angle, which absolutely is how memory can work because it can change where everybody is in the room. It can change the color of a room. It can change everything. Yeah, it's so one I of the, thought that was an absolute genius thing. Yeah, it's one of the few movies where lack of proper continuity is is actually a plus. <laughs> you know, yeah. most movies, yeah. you know, you have the the you know your script supervisor sitting there, and and they are taking meticulous notes of you know he picks up the mug with his right hand, not his left hand, and the you know the hats on this way or whatever and the collars flipped just the right way like trying to make all those notes because continuity 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 when you're shooting a scene sometimes over days 
right. how do you keep all those things consistent? But then it's funny. Yeah, Michelle Gondry is just like, nah, we don't need to. It's memory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was genius. Super genius. Loved it. <laughs> so wild. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and speaking of, of memory, um, what do you um, see the role of memory being in terms of our sense-making and, and creation of narrative uh, for ourselves? Like how, you know, I know you mentioned at the beginning, like how reliable or unreliable memory is. Um, that's something I'm always fascinated by. Uh, what are your sort of experiences around that sort of area of the reliability mm. of memory? Uh, I will tell you that when I wrote my thesis, that was like 10 years ago. So I don't remember. And I didn't dabble a whole lot in it afterwards. So um, I will tell you this is uh, that memory is unreliable, as, as, as we said. Mm -hmm. But um, the interesting thing is the the hippocampus where the our memories are stored, there's actually no sense of time. It doesn't keep track of time in there. All right. So the only way we know that memories are older or newer is how much of it we can recall. Mm -hmm. So the more degraded a memory is, the more we just associate it as it's an older memory. So I so I think that's an always an interesting concept of what can you recall, what can't you recall. And so in your mind, you're just placing things in a, time, a different time frame altogether. You can put things in a time frame. If you've been through a traumatic experience, you can have a complete blackout of that time frame. So you don't even remember things from there. Or you may remember it, but your brain doesn't want you to access that memory because it's too painful or hurtful. You're not able to manage it at that point. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that that makes it hard if you don't if you're not able to recall things from your life. It could be distressing. It could be hurtful, right? Because you're like, who am I? Like, what am I doing here? Who took care of me? What What did I do when I like? Who's my friend in this situation or ever? Mm -hmm. So yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I know it's because you know memory you know, and 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 reshaping memory is like like something I definitely took interest in as I I wrote my. Uh, second novel sleepwalker because it's all about like implanting this whole other sense of self and uh, brag <laughs> sure shameless self-promotion but i mean it's like it, you know i geeked out on it pretty hard and that was where i started getting mm -hmm. into all of this uh uh yeah. neuroscience and trying to understand that like how would one even feasibly theoretically go through um doing such a thing um but, it, you know, and that's what, that's where I really started getting into the appreciation of, yeah, just like how sketchy <laughs> memory is to the point where it's like, wow, why did we ever allow, you know, uh, uh, basically memory-based uh, eyewitness account uh, to, to hold such weight in court, you know? <laughs> But I guess we just didn't know any better. Like we had this assumption that like, oh, we just like, we have this recorder in our mind. And, but even just mm -hmm. in, in a moment when we experience things, like we're all paying attention to different things and we end up recording it differently. Right. And then, <laughs> so it's fascinating yeah. to see the experiments in that. Like, Yeah. I remember one experiment I always, I always think about is uh, they, 
for people who like looked at who experienced 9-11 um like with firsthand like watching watching like news coverage or videos or pictures you could convince them that they saw like a fox walking through the the scenery hmm. of it and like you could convince them and they would totally 100 percent like fight you like i know i saw a fox walking through the scenery of that day through the rubble whatever it may be wow and like it was just it was just so intense how much you could change, even for an intense memory that wow. people will have such strong emotional, visceral reactions to. You could change that memory. How are they doing that? Just just by being able to suggest the right things, or I don't remember the details. I remember they they tested it a lot, but it was I remember it was a fox walking through because that's wow. that's the thing that always stuck with me, like a fox walking through, like Manhattan, the rubble of you know nine eleven. Yeah. Crazy, huh? Maybe they saw it in a multiverse. I don't know. Maybe that was like, maybe, yeah, maybe. Yeah. It's be. like the Bernstein Bears <laughs> thing, like the the different. Story. Oh yeah, the Mandela effect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it could, it could be could be something like that. I don't know. Yeah, uh, well, we all believe the same thing. It's right. wild. So. So, so with that in mind, how do we trust our memories? You know, I don't want to, I, I just don't stress about it too much. <laughs> <laughs> I don't stress about it too much. Yeah. I guess it depends on what you mean by trusting your memories. Like if you're thinking about doing a procedure or like remembering things you have to do, I always recommend doing a checklist, mm. you know, and like, like when I get um, when I get Kaya's breakfast, my my four year old, when I get her stuff ready for the day, like her lunch, everything, I go through a checklist of like, get this ready, make this sandwich, get this stuff, get this stuff. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us will will tend to just say, I'm going to do it from memory. Right, right, right. But but do you want your pilot? Uh, if you've ever been on a plane, do you want your pilot to get the plane ready by memory, or do you want them to follow a checklist? <laughs> right, right. Right. Why? Why leave things a chance? Especially if something's off the routine, you'll suddenly like be thrown off by your routine. Right. So why not just follow a checklist and make sure you have everything set up? So, and um, one of the things I've started doing, I think I I saw you do, and I've started doing it is I carry a notebook, a little notebook around with me, a little memo pad mm-hmm. everywhere. Even like in my house, I'll carry it from room to room. Anytime I think of something like oh, I have to do this, I'll write it down right away. Yeah. Yeah. And then that way. I don't have to forget it. I could, I just have to remember. I just know that I set times to like check it and to process it and make sure I schedule to do those things. But that's helped me a lot. I don't have to rely on my memory. Like hopefully I'll remember this later to do this task. But right, yeah, I I certainly I am part part of me is I feel like I used to be better at remembering and doing things like that. And maybe part of it is just I think maybe life was simpler. But I definitely call it daddy brain. Like once, once I had a kid, it was just like, nah, forget it. Like if it's not written down yeah. somewhere uh, and I don't have some reminders, uh, forget it. I, I, you know, I won't, I, I, you could ask me like most days you can ask me, like, what'd you have for dinner yesterday? I'll be like, <laughs> let me think about it. You know? <laughs> like, like, but, th- but then yeah. I'll remember something stupid, like viscerally from like two years ago, you know, it's, so mm-hmm. it, it's fascinating to me how, 
how that works and like what jumps out, the things I remember, and then the things I forget. <laughs> yeah. To add a bit of trivia for you then, yeah. uh, cortisol, that stress hormone, mm-hmm. quote unquote stress hormone, if it enters the hippocampus because of a emotionally charged event, it creates a flashbulb uh, memory where essentially it, it you're able to remember that point in time like really clearly and strongly and eviscerally. Kind of like 9-11. We all remember where we were for 9-11. Right, right. Right. It's because of that that increased stress hormone we were all feeling, and it entered the hippocampus, and boom, we'll always remember that that detail. Ah. I try, yeah, that's fascinating. I'm wondering, it's been a little while, again, memory, right? Reliability of memory. It's been a little while since I read uh, David Eagleman's book, uh, The Brain, The Story of You. Um, but that mm-hmm. may be connected to the study. I don't know if you, you know his study that he did to try to determine whether um, our experience of time actually slows down when mm. we go through no. something seemingly traumatic. Uh, the, yeah, there, was, there was also a documentary uh, that on the subject uh, with him where they actually showed the process, how they did it. And mm. it, it's, it's pretty wild. Um, but basically what they ultimately were able to conclude from the study uh, by by dropping people with a clock basically from really big heights <laughs> into safe, like, you know, into, to, you know, uh, big uh, safety nets and whatnot. But there's still that adrenaline rush and that uh, probably cortisol, like that stress reaction in the moment. Yeah. Um, and it basically what his conclusion was, no, your perception of time doesn't slow down. It's just that, Everything happens so fast, but then your normal level of recall and of memory retention of your just day-to-day moments are relatively dull, you know, like, mm. because it's not, they're not that important. But then that cortisol kicks in, mm. makes this moment so vivid that in your memory, mm-hmm. in your immediate recall of it, it's like everything happened in slow motion because everything is, you know, you took it in it was such a level. You're of, observing everything. Yeah. yeah. Because of yeah, that yeah, fight yeah, or yeah. flight or freeze response, that like, what, are, what am I going to do? Um, that stress response. Mm. That's interesting. That reminds me of, um, I mean, that's that's essentially Einstein's theory of relativity. Right? Yeah, yeah. The way he explained it of uh, uh, you talk to a pretty girl for an hour and it feels like a minute, but (laughs) sit on a hot stove. (laughs) Sit on a hot stove and (laughs) and a second feels like an hour. Exactly. (laughs) But that's accurate. Right. Right. Right? Pretty accurate. Pretty accurate. That's accurate. Relativity. It's all relative. (laughs) Uh, Exactly. Exactly. Yep. It's uh, I mean, time dilation doesn't come into to play there, but that's back to Interstellar, probably the best uh, cinematic example of of like how time dilation would actually work, uh, which is uh, yeah. another yeah. thing I geeked out on for a different book that's coming out later. But yeah, <laughs> well, Chris, thank nice. you so much for geeking out with me for over an hour here and and talking about all these things. Yeah. Um, and, uh, 
but before we sign off uh, on this episode, uh, I'd love to hear from you recommendations on like the best sci-fi movie or TV show uh, you've seen recently that you wish more people would check out. Oof. I'm going to go with person of interest. Yeah. I mean, it got, I think it got like five seasons, so it wasn't like bad. Mm -hmm. It was just on CBS. So who's really watching it? (laughs) Um, Good thing I'm not sponsored by CBS. I think, (laughs) (laughs) but low key, I think, and I only caught it because on Netflix, I I needed something to watch. Yeah. And it just caught my attention right away because, and I wrote it off at the beginning of, it was just, the premise is this billionaire has this AI that can predict when crime is going to happen. So he enlists the help of this former special forces guy to help save the person. Mm. And so when I first heard that, I was like, eh, that doesn't sound super great. <laughs> like it sounds run of the mill, but it was so intricate, so well written, like so, so intense. And, you know, it, like before I was saying, like it asks a lot of these questions of if you have all this power, what should you do with it? How should you control it? Knowing that it can do anything. Right. Um, and it was so intense and like they had lots of great, and you know, the acting was well done. The storyline was great. And, um, you know, Jim Caviezel, who, you know, you may remember from passion of the Christ right. or other movies he's ever, ever mm-hmm. been in. Um, thin oh, thin red, red line. line. I think he's in thin yes. red line. Yeah, thin red line is yeah. one of my favorite movies ever. Yeah, I think he does a great job in this. Mm-hmm. You know, showing that showing that despair and the, and that trauma of whatever he's lived through, um, and still trying to find meaning in his life through this through this process. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, super super great show. Underrated. Not enough people watched it. Um, and again, I don't even know where you can watch it. Paramount mm-hmm. Paramount Plus. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> that's a thing right maybe that <laughs> I, th- I think it's a thing yeah yeah um and then uh yeah i'm reading this book unidentified oh but really? it's a real slog to get through yeah so. i heard it's i heard it's so so yeah it gets pretty <laughs> <laughs> yeah um what would you recommend what should i be checking out which should you be checking out um the expanse I, I, Expanse. That's I, on my list. Yeah, I and I got to get back into it. I've read the first three books, really, really enjoy them, and I've started the show. And and uh, I just I got to carve out the time between you know work and family and all that craziness. I haven't been uh, catching up on my shows as much, but uh, but it's definitely one of those that that's uh, some of the very best. Um, Near, you know, near future space opera type uh, science fiction mm-hmm. that that does it pretty well in terms of being both just really cool plot, really cool characters, but also being uh, fairly accurate to the science. And um, yeah, and it's not okay. you know okay. like actually dealing with the scale of the universe and and uh, and our solar system and not just uh, you know boop we just hit a button and whoosh, you know and then we're at this mm. like whole other planet and who knows where in the universe <laughs> but like there's mm-hmm. actual like, mm-hmm. <laughs> real science to it. Uh, I mean they yeah. yeah. they they take some liberties with the type of 
engines that the the spaceships have, so how fast they can go. Uh, but it's not beyond the realm of plausibility in terms of mm, sure, what a yeah. hundred years out, uh, two hundred years out, potentially like we're we're dealing with. So, but yeah, mm. I'd I'd recommend the Expanse. Yeah, it's on my list. Yeah. As you know, just got to find time to <laughs> actually sit down and watch it. Right, same here. Like, yeah, I know we've talked about person of interest before, and it does sound really intriguing. Um, and so, yeah, one of those things. One of these days, uh, take a sabbatical and, and just burn through. All From your things. family. Yeah, right. <laughs> From your family. Uh, well, I got. I think I got infected with COVID. I got quarantined for two weeks. Right. Bye. <laughs> I finally do that in like 2023. And, you know, the wife's just like, <laughs> they cured it like two years ago, dude. <laughs> Oh right! Hey, it's science. I can't. Science. I can't argue with science. Right. I got a. I got a quarantine. <laughs> it's a COVID nineteen two point or something. I don't know. Hopefully not. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> not uh, that. But yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Love talking about it. Love being on here. Oh, this was lots of fun. And like I said, at some point we're gonna have to uh, geek out about a few other things, uh, X Files included. Yeah. Both uh, longtime fans of uh, of that formative show. Yeah, I feel like I just need to watch it so I can be I know, prepared right? to <laughs> talk about in a little it. while. <laughs> so yeah. many things we could unpack from there too. That could just be its own podcast, just going back through the X Files. <laughs> rewatch an X Files rewatch. Yeah, <laughs> rewatch and unpack. It'd be pretty wild. Oh boy! At some point, our at some point, I feel like our families will be a little angry at us for doing these things. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that's its own podcast though <laughs> we just get we just get our wives to start Isn't their own podcast? podcast where they um complain about us watching stuff and having a podcast or multiple podcasts yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then brielle and kaya have a podcast yeah. where they're like where are our parents <laughs> where's your dad i don't know where's your dad <laughs> <laughs> perfect uh, <laughs> yeah but yes we'll make it happen sounds good excellent well thank you so much chris we'll, yeah uh, we'll thank chat you. more soon absolutely and that's our show for this episode thanks so much for listening uh please comment below let me know uh what your thoughts are on the neuroscience of storytelling and how we continue to make sense of life uh through narrative, through stories, uh, and just interesting ways the brain operates that way. And maybe you have some examples of science fiction that uh, really displays emotionally mature characters. I'm definitely very curious to contemplate that some more. Please uh, you know, give a thumbs up or, or rate uh, this podcast wherever you check it out. Leave a review. It's hugely appreciated. And as always, uh, I encourage you to check out uh, some of my books and other materials at michaelwhistler.com. That's M-I-K-E-L-W-I-S-L-E-R.com. Thank you so much. Please be well, be safe, and continue to ask big questions. We'll see you soon.